learning how to make these changes and how to judge if they're actually helping you is really important in figuring out what's going to be in your protocol for the long term. Hi there, I'm Kelly Tennant and welcome to The Platform Podcast, where we get real so you can be well. Each week, I sit down to have authentic conversations with the leading voices in health and wellness to help you detox your life and give you the tools to feel your best and most vibrant self. My guests are here to educate you on the latest healing remedies, ancient wisdom, and alternatives to the traditional path. I've personally curated the platform to elevate your mind, body, and spirit. When I first got sick, I was on a lot of different drugs that Western medicine doctors put me on. And it was a couple years that were very brutal, very dangerous, very scary, and just didn't feel right to me. So after two years, when I turned 21, I decided to go the holistic route. And I'm so glad I did that for a lot of reasons. Over the next 10 years, I really started focusing on how I could use food as medicine. So instead of just taking drugs and numbing the pain or avoiding it altogether, how could I get to the root and use food to heal my body? And it was when I found the autoimmune protocol that I've shared with you guys many times that my whole life changed. My whole world and perspective of the impact food could have on your body was completely flipped upside down. And one of the people that became highly influential in my life at that time was Mickey Trescott. And so this is a really big pinch me moment because Mickey is our guest today. And she was so generous with her time. And she's someone that I've looked up to and idolized ever since I found the autoimmune protocol because she's one of the people that has done a ton of the work in this protocol and elimination diet in order to heal. And she has the best recipes. I cannot pump up her recipes enough. I've used so many of them over the years, one of them being her raspberry pie that is to die for. And you'll hear me talk about it in this episode, but it's gotten me through many a holidays when I was the one that couldn't have a lot of the normal conventional treats that everyone else was eating. And she made me into a baker with this pie. So make sure you find that. We will link it for you. But she just came out with her new book, The Nutrient Dense Kitchen, and it is beautiful. I have it on my kitchen counter and the recipes are so next level. And she just focuses a lot on the nutrient density in our bodies and how you can become a nutrivore. And as she's worked through her own Hashimoto's and celiac disease, she learned how to take the healing into her own hands. And even though the test results that she was getting weren't showing a lot of the things that she felt were causing problems for her body, she advocated for herself and asked for more and has really worked the system in a great way. So we talk a lot about the deep healing and how you can transition out foods that are inflammatory and introduce a lot of nutrient-dense foods that will nourish your body and help you heal things like leaky gut, Hashimoto's, Epstein-Barr, chronic fatigue, insomnia, pain, chronic headaches, all of these things are really impacted by the autoimmune protocol. So I'm thrilled to introduce you to Mickey. To find her, go to Mickey Trescott, 
That's T-R-E-S-C-O-T-T on Instagram. You can find her at mickeytrescott.com. And don't forget to grab the Nutrient Dense Kitchen. So Mickey, I have the Nutrient Dense Kitchen right in front of me. And I have to tell you, this book is so beautiful. You killed it. (laughs) It's amazing. And that's kind of where I want to start because you've been coming up with recipes for so long now. You are one of the leading voices in the autoimmune protocol and chronic illness space. And I'm so grateful for you for that. But I want to know where the Nutrient Dense Kitchen came from for you and what went into creating this beautiful cookbook? Yeah, thank you so much for having me on, Kelly. So the Nutrient Dense Kitchen came out of my personal quest with the autoimmune protocol, otherwise known as AIP. So I adopted this around 2012. So at this point, six or seven years ago, when I was diagnosed with Hashi's and celiac, I had a whole health crisis, which I know you guys are probably no stranger to that um, talking on this show, just kind of how to overcome that type of stuff. But I'd been vegan before. I had come to decide to change my diet just because my health was in such a disastrous state. I had lost my job and everything. And AIP, you know, it was not a miracle cure when I have, you know, a minute to talk about it. It sounds that way. But it was really the thing that started to set in motion me regaining my health. And so over the years, this movement has grown. The autoimmune protocol has been featured in medical studies. I mean, we've, we put it to the test things that six years ago, I never, ever would have thought was possible. And now it's become more validated as an actual legitimate way that people with autoimmune disease and chronic illness can actually help themselves and identify their food allergies and sensitivities. But Recently, I've noticed as it's exploded, of course, this happens in any movement that has grassroots growth growth in the beginning and just becomes almost mainstream, the message gets a little watered down, right? And for AIP, we eliminate a lot of foods. And I've noticed that those are the things that people are really focusing on when they're doing this healing diet. And they were ignoring the piece of nutrient density, which I think is equal to the the principles of of removing inflammatory foods. And so just because that that discussion is a little more nuanced, I think it got lost recently in in kind of the explosion of AIP. So I really wanted my next book. I, I wrote the first AIP cookbook called the Autoimmune Paleo Cookbook six years ago. And this is my second full solo cookbook. And I just wanted to reassert that nutrient density is this important part of the process. And actually, I think it's so important that I didn't label the book AIP on the cover. Um, I wanted to lead with nutrient density because I, I noticed that the people that I've coached and, and the people that I hear from on the blog really the ones that are successful are the ones that take this piece seriously because it's nutrients that fuel the healing process. If you don't take in the nutrients, your body doesn't have that raw substrate to do what it needs to do. So that I know that was kind of a long answer, but that's really what drove me to write this book. No, it's amazing. And something that's come up for me over the last year is I've really gotten deeper into holistic healing and functional medicine and the autoimmune protocol is that the autoimmune protocol isn't just for people that have quote unquote diagnosed chronic illness. I find that this 
way of living, this lifestyle, this elimination diet is amazing for people that have acne or maybe you're just having some hormone problems that haven't been diagnosed with a chronic illness or they have headaches or sleeping problems. And so you introduce this concept of taking out inflammatory foods and then introducing nutrient-dense foods. And this can really heal and work with a whole slew of issues that we're dealing with. So I love too that you didn't just call it an AIP diet because I think it serves way more than that community. Yeah, I I totally agree. And I think, you know, a lot of people get scared away by the word autoimmune. Um, It's kind of a big, scary word, despite the fact that over something like 55 million Americans suffer from an autoimmune disease. We don't really seem to know what that is. So I think the rate of undiagnosis is super high. And then the rate of awareness of even people who may not have an autoimmune disease, but you know, their body might be having um, an autoimmune reaction um, to produce whatever symptoms. And then there's the people that, like you said, Kelly, like are have a lifestyle that is inflammatory, whether that's the food that they're eating, the way they're managing their stress. AIP is a template that addresses the whole life. It's actually not just a dietary protocol. There are some lifestyle factors in there too. And anyone can definitely benefit from that. It's just usually that people that are so motivated by illness are the only ones that are willing to go through the process because it is pretty hard. you know. Mm-hmm. One thing that you mentioned was how many studies there are around AIP now. And I remember when I saw my functional medicine doctor about a year and a half ago, it was the first time I was introduced to functional medicine. It all had been seen conventional Western doctors for a long time. And as you know, I re- read your story again in this book and they, they don't use food as medicine and they're not the first to say, okay, what are you eating? But when I told my doctor, I've been on this thing called the autoimmune protocol on and off for years. And it's the one thing that's made the big difference. And he said to me, yeah, I love the autoimmune protocol. It's the, it's the diet and elimination I recommend for all of my patients dealing with chronic illness. And I just stopped and looked at him. I think my jaw dropped and I thought, wait a second, doctors know about this? And it's true. It has really exploded in the medical world because they're seeing what a difference it makes using food as medicine and this component of the nutrient density and taking out the inflammation markers. And I was so excited. (laughs) Yeah. It's really interesting. Five years ago, when I was going through this healing process myself, I was almost like, I would be shocked if a doctor or if anyone had said their doctor even like was interested in knowing more about what their patient was doing as far as diet, most of them were saying, oh no, that doesn't work. There's no studies on that, whatever. Five years later now, I I mean, people tell me all the time, my doctor told me about this. I'm here reading your blog or I bought your book because my doctor told me. And I'm just like blown away because that's a lot of change in five years, you know, especially, um, you know, our medical system is really slow to come around to new research and new ideas. And I think the, the benefit of having so many influencers and so many leaders in the natural health sphere is that we can get information about things that are working for people a lot quicker than just waiting for that to trickle down in the research and and hit the doctor's offices. So it's really fun. What are some things that you've learned on this journey within the autoimmune protocol and creating these recipes and all of the research that's now coming out and your personal experience of taking foods out and reintroducing them? What are some things that you know now that you may not have known when you first started this? So something that is really uh, is becoming 
obvious to me that was not obvious in the beginning is just how individual everyone's body and immune system is. So in the beginning, you know, there were a lot of people that I was connected to that were personally having success with AIP and we were all kind of sharing notes and we were all had this um, shared experience of being debilitated and, and incredibly sick. And so the changes that we were seeing were, were pretty amazing. And we started to think, oh my gosh, this is, this works for everyone in the same way. So, you know, now six, six years later, having a lot of experience with clients and, and just seeing different people, I would just say that there's so much nuance. I'm always surprised at what people can tolerate as far as um, adding some foods back. So I've had this happen in my own journey where in the very early days, a nightshade family of vegetables can be really problematic for a lot of people with arthritis and other autoimmune problems. But for me, I just was like, I had such a violent reaction to them. I was like, I'm never going to eat these again. And here I am. I can tolerate almost all of them except for tomatoes now. Mm -hmm. I never would have thought that at the beginning. And I've seen this happen to time and time again where people's diets expand. And really, they, they start to have this approach that when they're sick or they have a flare or they're not feeling well, you batten down the hatches. So you go back to the safe diet. It could be AIP. It could be close to AIP, whatever works for you. And then when you're in a time of good health and you know maybe you can travel, maybe you're going out to celebrate you know, a friend's wedding or something, you can unfurl the sails a little bit. You kind of know your boundaries. And so in the beginning, I, I think I used to think of AIP as a little too rigid. I think a lot of people made this mistake. And now I really see it as this beautiful process that you go through. And when you come out the other side, they're still actually changing. You actually never really reach the light at the end of the tunnel. You're always learning. But what you have is this, this framework and these tools to actually figure out what's working for you, what is supporting your healing process, and what is not serving you. And then you can make an informed decision. And sometimes you can make a decision to do something or eat something that doesn't actually make you feel great. But if there's a trade-off, maybe if that thing or that experience is going to bring you a lot of joy, I mean, I'm all for it. you know. So yeah, so yeah I think that's, that's one thing that's really changed a lot for me over the years is just opening my mind to kind of that end goal um, is being basically the least restricted diet and lifestyle that affords you the most healing, mm-hmm. you know? Well, and I think when we are so sick and those moments where we're either bedridden or we can't see straight or we're in so much pain or we're so tired that there, it seems like there's no hope. And it seems like, well, I'm going to have to eat like this forever and my life is over and I'm never going to have fun again. And I think what I have realized now that I have moments of clarity and I do have good health and I've healed my gut is that when I focused on the autoimmune protocol for a certain amount of time, whether it was three months, six months, nine months, depending on how sick I was and what work I was doing, focusing on it then now allows me to have a life that is full where I can have different things. Like you mentioned, being able to have different nightshades or having a glass of wine without wanting to die the next day. And the way that I teach it, and it seems like the way you speak about it is focus on it now, give your body what it needs, give it the nutrients, take out the things that are inflammatory so that in the long run, you can have the life that you want. This isn't a life sentence. Yep. For sure. For sure. It's it's all information and all of that information. If you see it as positive, as, as, if you see it as your body telling you something, you can actually do something about it, which I think is really empowering for people. I think a lot of us have things that 
you know, we might never get back. Like for me, I have a dairy allergy. It's just never going to happen. <laughs> and, and I'm okay with that. And, um, and, you know, so I'm open to that. But then also being kind of surprised to discover some things when they do change, you know, because things don't always stay the same. So. Yeah, that one day when I had ketchup for the first time in months and I didn't have pain and I thought, oh, this is the good life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, lucky you. Those oh, tomatoes. <laughs> I know, they me the devil, that's for sure. How's your journaling going, everybody? Have you started? Are you using our journal? What is your routine looking like? I would love to support you as you introduce this concept into your life. And I also would love to hear how journaling is impacting you. Is it changing the way you talk to yourself? Is it changing the way you start your day? Are you finding more calm and comfort and self-love because you're sharing time with yourself that is sacred and really an important part of your day? What's happening around your journaling? I want to know. And if you need a journal to introduce into your life and to start journaling with prompts and a little bit of guidance, I urge you to head to thisistheplatform.com slash journal. The reviews I'm hearing about it is that it's really helping people not have to think and just show up every day. And it's really simple to use. And it just guides you through the whole process. And we thoughtfully curated it for you so that this could be something that was really easy and not stressful and just a great practice to have in your everyday. When you're talking about doing this protocol for people, how I know you said everyone is different, of course, and you have to listen to your own body, but how long do you see it taking most people when they really introduce this and they do follow it diligently? Yeah, so it really is going to depend on the person's health status coming in. So um, I generally recommend 30 to 90 days mm-hmm. on strict elimination before someone decides to either start working with a practitioner to do some troubleshooting or maybe start to investigate like, is there something else going on here? Because usually one to three months, people are noticing some changes. So you know, it might not be a complete reversal of your symptoms or your disease or whatever, but a lot of people see things like better digestion. They might see better energy. They might be sleeping better. Their skin might look better things like that. And those are things that you're on the right track. And if you're on the right track, then you can continue doing the elimination diet if it is sustainable for you. Or if you're just figuring out that maybe you know, there, you're know you still having some lingering gut issues, you can reach out to someone do some troubleshooting. Now, some people need more time to transition to the autoimmune protocol. So that 30 to 90 days actually starts when you're compliant and you actually need to be 100%, which is hard for a lot of people. I would say if if this is you, then it's okay. You don't have to do it in a day or a weekend or just you know pick a day on the calendar. I would actually recommend doing a slow transition to the autoimmune protocol and removing the foods one at a time or two at a time or however it works for you. So it might look like you know taking out gluten and then taking out grains and then taking out dairy and then taking out eggs. It might take you six or eight weeks to get there, but that's a much more sustainable way for people to transition to the autoimmune protocol. Cause a lot of these foods, you know, when you take them all out at once, it's like, okay, eggs or, or grains, there goes breakfast and, and, you know, bread, well, there goes my lunch, my sandwich. And it just, you, to start from having to just completely re overhaul the entire diet at once is just way too overwhelming. So 
for people that are thinking, how am I ever going to get compliant? And then they're going to be white knuckling it through that 30 or 90 days. I would actually just recommend even slowing that way down. And people might think, oh, that just sounds like such a long time. I just want to get to it. I want to start right away. What I would say is that how long did it take you to get here? You know, how how many years of choices got you to where you are now? And and sometimes not even choices, sometimes it's disease that we can't control. But living with autoimmune disease and living with chronic illness is a lifelong process. So if if you think that, you know, white knuckling it through 30 days is going to fix everything, it's not, you know. So learning how to do uh, make these changes sustainably and how to judge if they're actually helping you is really important in the task to figuring out what's going to be in your protocol for the long term, you know? Yeah, that's so beautifully said. And it really is about showing yourself grace through this process because for people that are living with chronic illness, you're already beating yourself up every day living with this and you're hard on yourself because you can't go to work or you can't have the relationship you want and do the things that you love adding that into, okay, now I'm going to cause this stress with the way I'm eating and I have to take all these things out and just create havoc within your body, that doesn't do you any good. It doesn't help with your healing process. So I love the concept of slowly integrating into this and allowing your body the grace and the time to really feel into it. I want to ask what some of the biggest issues people have with this and where they get tripped up because I would love this community to have the tools so that they can learn how to handle this and be prepared if something comes up and they're not sure how to deal with it. Yeah. So I mean, the first thing actually, I think is just that transitioning too fast. Um, so we covered that pretty well, but you know, don't be tempted to just do it in a day. This is going to take a lot of planning and preparation. Other than that, it's just not setting yourself up for success. And so for for me, I like to think that any planning um, with the meal, so like meal planning and batch cooking are, are the two biggest tools that I recommend for anyone doing any kind of dietary overhaul. And you can apply this to the autoimmune protocol, but you can apply it to anything if you're doing a low FODMAP protocol for SIBO um, or any other kind of dietary modification. These are the things that are going to set you up for success and actually having the food in uh, your fridge that you can eat all the time <laughs> instead of expecting to go somewhere and eat out, which is probably not going to happen. So with meal planning, you're just going to sit down, you're going to write down every day of the week, maybe you'll find some recipes online or in cookbooks, or you have some recipes that you make regularly in your kitchen that you know you love. Just write down what days you're going to make them on and set aside that time. First of all, if you don't set aside the time, you're not going to be able to do it. And then just plan that recipe and then make a list of all the ingredients you need for your different shops. So if you're going to shop twice a week, make a couple lists, you know, tie those recipes to the list. And then also do a little pantry clear out. So if you have any ingredients that maybe you're off limit on AIP or whatever protocol you're doing, but that are still nutrient dense that you might use in the future. So this might be things like, you know, a nice cocoa powder, some nuts, some seed spices. You don't want to throw those away. You're going to want to keep them, but you're not going to be wanting to look at them all the time because they might trip you up. So I recommend putting them all in a box maybe even taping it up, throw them in a closet while you're doing it. And you don't have to look at the chocolate. You don't have to look at the you know, bars or whatever you had in your, in your drawer. And you can decide to keep them or toss them later. 
But that really helps. And then when you go to the store that first time, just make sure that you're getting a bunch of AIP compliant things. So you're going to want to get some spices if you don't have any herbs. A lot of the herbs are um, able to be used on AIP. You can use things like turmeric and ginger and garlic, onions. Just make sure you have a good range of spices to use in your cooking. Make sure that you have some AIP compliant pantry items. And then whatever you needed for your meal plan, you can shop for that too. So then we move on to batch cooking, which is the practice of cooking more than you need in order to have leftovers for later. So I don't think anyone wants to feel like they need to cook three meals a day from scratch. Um, I've been doing this for a long time and I never, I never have done that. <laughs> um, especially if you have other family members or kids, it just can be really, really chaotic to implement so what I recommend doing is once or twice a week, I usually do this twice a week, I will plan to cook two or three, sometimes even four or five recipes at once at the same time. And I will plan them so that I'm maybe cooking one big pot of soup and a couple things in the oven at the same time that cook at the same temperature. And then I'll also maybe prep some vegetables or, or salad. And then I portion everything out into glass Pyrex containers. And then I have it all ready for the week or the next few days. This is so that when you wake up in the morning and you, your first day of AIP, you wake up and you're like, oh, I have breakfast, lunch, and dinner already cooked. And then the second day, you might have to do a little dinner batch cook or a little top-up, but really making sure that your fridge and your pantry are just full of the food that you can eat. It's going to make sure that you are successful on your dietary change and you're not just looking at a list on your fridge and then looking at some ingredients and being like, oh, what do I do with this? That's how people get off track really quickly. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think for you know people that have a lively social life, I guess I'll call it that. I don't know what that looks like. I'm at home in my robe every day these days. But people that do have a lively social life and they think that if I do this protocol, I'm going to miss out on going out to dinner and doing fun things. And usually my answer is that, yes, you're not going to be able to eat out the way that you usually do. But if you follow this and you really take care of yourself and you heal your body deeply, then you'll get to go back to enjoying life again and being able to eat out and not have to worry about every single ingredient that's in your food and have to cook all of your meals. So how do you walk people through that process? Yeah. So in the beginning, there's definitely a phase where I, I don't think a, like a healing diet and a lively social life go together. Um, it's it's frustrating. Um, and for me, it was about a year where I just never went to a restaurant and I didn't go out to eat with anyone or hang out with my friends at a bar or whatever. But now, you know, thing when you do start reintroducing foods, you start to understand kind of where those that gray area is. And like I talked about before, battening down the hatches and unfurling the sails, you kind of realize what things you can expose yourself to and and still, you know, be okay. So for me now, I look for restaurants and I have like a whole list of places in Portland, probably over 20 that I know I can safely eat at and they can provide food that is gluten and dairy cross-contamination free. They use high quality ingredients. A lot of them use really high quality cooking oils. Um, They can get me a nightshade free or a tomato free meal. And I don't feel like I'm missing out whenever my friends want to go out. It's like, great, let's go to one of the, (laughs) the following places. And there are plenty of good ones and restaurants 
catering to dietary restrictions is becoming more and more normal. And a lot of restaurants restaurants are kind of picking up that clue phone and, and figuring out that a lot of their patrons are sensitive to different ingredients. And so that's really great. But another thing on that topic, I would say is that the more confident that you are in what you're doing for your health, how, how that makes you feel, that confidence is going to make it easier for you to go out and socialize and hang out with people. Um, I go to restaurants all the time and don't eat. And in the beginning, that was really hard for me. I would say that I had to build up some resilience. But over time, the health that I've gained in just sticking to my plan and then not being weird about it has really made it not, not an issue for me. Like I don't feel bad for myself and my friends know enough to not feel bad for me. And if anything, they know that I was probably eating a great steak before I came to whatever restaurant. <laughs> um, and, and that, you know, I'm having like a lime and tonic water or whatever. Um, it's fine. You know, I, I think that if you're, your um, gatherings, if the focus is on community and being with people that you love, you don't really need the, the food and the alcohol to have fun, you know? And if those people aren't fun without the food and the alcohol, then I might be like, well, who are you hanging out with? <laughs> you know? So true. So yeah. Yeah. I think that's great. And it's true. As long as you are advocating for yourself and setting clear boundaries, people will respect that. And if you're not weird about it, no one else is going to be weird about it. It might take a few times, but they'll adjust. (laughs) 100%. And even with dealing with family, family is way harder than friends because you can't choose them. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you're not weird about it, usually they won't be weird. I have so many family members that you know, at reunions or whatever, they'll come up and they'll be like, well, I really want to talk about how you're not eating this, whatever I made. And I was like, you know what? Aunt, whoever, I don't really want to make a big deal about it. I just eat the way that makes me feel good. Thanks, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and yeah. and end it. You don't have to go and well, my immune system, blah blah blah. You know, then then that's like really um, going to create more problems. So just you know, give a short explanation. Be like, I'm not trying to hurt your feelings. End the conversation. Um, you know, and don't be weird. I love that. Yeah, and it, you don't have to force yourself on anyone, and you also don't have to feel like you need to explain yourself. And I think this is just a larger conversation of boundaries in general. But don't you feel like chronic illness and autoimmune disease forces us to take a step back and to really choose ourselves? Yes, yeah, for sure. It it really forces us to to speak up about how we feel. I I think um, when you have a chronic illness, not a lot of people are asking how you feel because they're so confused about how to deal with someone with chronic illness in their life. And they they don't, we don't have the language, right? We don't have any kind of social norm or structure in order to support people, especially women that have chronic illness. So it can be really difficult to talk about. And then it can be really difficult to feel confident and empowered. And like you are setting your boundaries and and kind of doing what you need to do to be healthy when you don't have that structure, right? Mm. So so yeah, I, I, I'm with you. Boundary setting, clarity, confidence, and, and you don't have to justify anything to anyone. You just have to tell them like, this is what I do. Take it or leave it, you know? Yeah, no, I I completely agree with you. I get a lot of questions from people that are vegans or vegetarians and how they can do the autoimmune protocol. How would you explain that to someone like that? Yeah, so um, I don't advise anyone who is vegan to do AIP. And this is because 
we've removed all of the protein sources that you would need on a vegan diet. So there's no nuts, there's no seeds, there's no grains, there's no legumes. It's basically nutritionally not going to meet your needs. And that doesn't mean that you can't do an elimination diet or you can't do a healing diet. I would definitely see if you can find a practitioner who understands elimination diets that can customize something to you. Um, But I wouldn't recommend just layering vegan with AIP because the reason why AIP works is because of the nutrient density. And if you're doing it vegan, you would be stripping all of that away. So for vegetarians, it's tricky because we remove dairy and eggs, which vegetarians rely on for a lot of nutrition. If they're willing to eat fish and shellfish, it is possible to do a fully compliant AIP. And I would actually argue that that is one of the most nutrient-dense ways to do the autoimmune protocol is with a ton of fish and shellfish, especially if they're eating cold water fatty fish like salmon, sardines. Um, If they're experimenting with some some shellfish, that's going to be really nutrient-dense. And they're going to actually have a really easy time managing that um, anti-inflammatory pathways. So the omega-3 fats are really high. The nutrient density is really high in all those foods. But I would say if anyone doesn't want to eat seafood, that they should probably try to customize with the help of a nutritionist just because it is really tricky to work around the nutrition side of that. And I don't want anyone to get sick or be malnourished because... Um, you know, you can remove all the grains and legumes to do the elimination phase if you're eating the meat, but if you're also not going to eat the meat, it's a problem. Yeah, no, it's so true. And something that I didn't know about at all when I started this was what an organ meat was. So mm. can you explain what organ meats are? Yeah, so organ meats are basically all of the bits that we are not used to seeing in the grocery store. So we're used to eating muscle meat, which is obviously the muscles of uh, the animal in question. So, you know, chicken breast or, you know, turkey thigh. But the organs, like the liver, the kidney, um, are actually the bones are available too. You know, we slaughter the animals, and, and a lot of that just goes into processing to, to make other products that end up in the food supply one way or another. But traditionally, cultures have actually prized the organ meats over the muscle meat because it is more nutrient dense. They they know, you know. And so these organ meats, you know, a lot of people are kind of turn their nose up at it, but they're actually really rich sources of nutrients that especially people with chronic illness have a really hard time getting. So things like fat soluble vitamins like vitamin A, and um, iron, zinc, um, these are things that especially like people with Hashimoto's like me or celiac, um, they have a really hard time with anemia. Um, they're really high in B vitamins. So if you're open to it, I feel like eating liver especially is kind of like... Liver is actually the most nutrient-dense food. So ounce for ounce, it just has more nutrition than anything on the planet that you could possibly eat it is incredible. And I feel like it's it's like we're wearing a battery pack. So I can't eat it too late in the day. I have the same rules <laughs> for liver as I do with caffeine. <laughs> if, if I eat it too late in the day, I will literally stay up all night because it has so many B vitamins in it that it's just wow. very stimulating. So for anyone who's feeling super low energy and uh, you know, maybe possibly even anemic, try some of my pate recipes. They're really good. And I don't like the taste of liver. I don't like handling liver. I was vegan for 10 years. I don't even like cooking meat, (laughs) but I do it because it makes me feel 
so good. And I figured out a way to cook it that doesn't taste bad. So <laughs> if you guys want to <laughs> try it, just my recipes are all for free on my blog, the, um, the two pate recipes that I have. So if you Google Mickey Trescott pate, they'll come up and trust me, they are the best place to start. Yes, I need to try that. I need to try your pate recipes. I do like pate. I've never made it myself though. So maybe you will be my gateway into this world. <laughs> As Mickey and I talk about, it's really important to be able to advocate for yourself and know what tests to ask your doctor for and how to have conversations with them. And this was a huge problem for me for those 13 years of my life that I didn't have a functional medicine doctor. And I had no idea what to ask or how to advocate for myself. So if you go to thisistheplatform.com, you'll see tests to ask your doctor for. And it's one of the best resources that you can use to help yourself. And you can look at it before you go into the doctor. You can really be armed and prepared for when you walk in and say, I'm having these symptoms. These are the things I'm dealing with. Here are some of the tests that I'd like to have. And Anytime you get pushback, you can always refer back to that and say, look, I understand that this is not something you think is necessary, but my gut tells me that I would really like to try and see what my levels are on these specific tests. And it will really just make you more confident in your experience with doctors, whether they're conventional or functional. It doesn't matter It's all about you and your experience and your confidence. Don't forget to get tests to ask your doctor for at kellytenant.com. And it's a free download and resource. And I just want to make you feel good about your health. How was it for you going from vegan to eating meat again? You know... It it was really hard. I I went through probably three months of of really like mourning, and I don't think I ever would have started eating meat again had I not had my health crisis. But when I started eating red meat about three months in, I, I did a really slow transition. I was eating eggs and fish, and I was feeling a little bit better. And then I had my husband cook me some red meat and we kind of hid it in a bunch of vegetables. And I expected to get sick. And at the time, I was in a really bad Hashimoto's hypothyroid flare. And my body temperature was usually 93 to 94 degrees. So I was very, very cold. And I hadn't been medicated yet at that point. And I ate this meat and I was just like, oh, I know I'm going to feel sick because everyone says that you know when you're a vegetarian or you're vegan and you eat meat, your body can't digest it and all this stuff. So I just went upstairs. I, I was like, I'm going to feel like crap. And I felt like really warm and my cheeks like got pink. And I was like, oh, I should take my temperature. And I did. And it was 97 degrees. I hadn't seen that in probably like six months. I was just so cold all the time. And I was like, oh, my body needs something in that. And that was the thing that, you know, everyone has their reason for being vegan. But I just, at that point, I wasn't willing to personally suffer like feeling like a zombie 24 seven so that animals could live. I, I had to figure out how to to um, make peace with that side of it. And, you know, since then I've, I've done a lot of work Um, and it's still hard. I'll be honest. It is. Animals are still hard. I was looking at my, my neighbor's cows yesterday down the Mm -hmm. street who we, we buy beef from and, you know, I was talking to them and, you know, thanking them and still 
struggling a little bit with that piece, but um, you know, it's part um, of the process. <laughs> yeah, part of the learning. It's part of the circle of life. And and big thing that I've learned recently, really through the work of like Diana Rogers, is just how much the plant life on this planet is dependent on animals. Mm-hmm. You know, all of that produce that I ate as a vegan was dependent on fertilizer that came from animals. You know. And it's part of the circle of life. So that's where I'm at. You know, may resonate with some people, might not. But um, I know it's a a struggle for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. What does it feel like for you to be in good health now and look back at that younger version of you that was struggling and in so much pain? Hmm. It's interesting because I didn't really think I could get sick. I, I think I just was... Part of it, I wish I could go back to just being so naive about health stuff and about taking care of my body because even though I'm healthy now and I'm free from a lot of the symptoms that I had back then, I'm not free from knowing better about a lot of different things. And and I think I, my mind trips me up a lot, you know? So I guess... Um, that isn't really a good answer to your question, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I wish that now I could actually relax a little bit more into being young and not being so worried about what's going to happen as I get older, you know, because having a health crisis when you're in your 20s and wondering if you're going to be debilitated for the rest of your life. I mean, I, I had to struggle with that for a long time, being newly married, having my husband really having to, to take up a lot of slack. And um, yeah, it, it was really stressful. So now I'm kind of like, oh, you know, I, I have a lot of health, but, you know, there's a lot of things about maintaining my health that I stress out about because I've been there before. So sometimes I wish I could go back and just be like, I just want to relax a little bit and not think <laughs> not think about it, you know? Yeah. Well, and I think I talk a lot about the mind-body connection on my show and the direct correlation between stress and anxiety and emotional things that we go through and the way that impacts our physical health. And so how do you navigate that and make sure you're doing the self-care and you're taking care of that stress and anxiety so you're not having these aggressive flare-ups? Yeah. So so I'm a big fan of meditation. Um, I'll be honest. I'm not always great at practicing. Um, I'm in a little bit of a, um, I'm having a, what, what is it called? I'm having a streak right now. Ah. I'm, doing, I'm doing a great job, but I will have, I will definitely say I fall off the wagon for months at a time sometimes. And I, I definitely tie this general sense of um, anxiety, especially about health stuff to when I'm not being mindful and present right now. And Checking in every day, you know, I do 10 minutes a day. I, you know, I know a lot of people do more, but that's what I can manage. I do it right when I wake up. And it just kind of reminds me, I'm here now, I'm breathing, you know, my my body feels what it feels, and you know, I can manage what I can manage, but like I'm I'm grateful that I have the opportunity to sit here and breathe right now. Mm-hmm. And that's been really powerful for me. And um, you know, I I don't know that I'm really the type of person that can get super deep into mindfulness. And, and actually, I think autoimmune types you know, tend to be a lot more wound up and have restless minds. And so maybe, maybe that's why. 
(laughs) meditation is medicinal for us. But yeah. I so agree with that. And I was talking to a girlfriend yesterday. She was having a really, really rough day. She was in a very dark place. She's struggling with chronic Lyme and it's just getting the best of her right now. And she said that she was having an anxiety attack and and scared that it wasn't going to end and feeling really nauseous. And I think a lot of us have been in that place. And what's your advice for people in those really difficult moments where we feel like it's not going to end and we can't see the light at the end of the tunnel? Yeah. So, so in addition to just breathing, you know, if you have that meditation practice, I know that when I'm practicing, I'm more likely to go there, but when I'm not practicing, I won't, I will let my mind totally take over. Um, in addition to that, just looping in someone in your circle, like it sounds like she reached out to you. That's exactly what I would do is, um, you know, like I live on the farm with my mom and my sister and, you know, I've had episodes where I just really feel like I can't get control of my emotions and I'll call one of them over and just be like, Hey, can you sit with me? And I don't know what it is just about being in the presence of someone you love. A lot of times they'll like, this happened maybe two months ago to me where I had a really bad attack of vertigo and had my sister come over and I was just full on panicking and she comes over and then I'm like laughing. Like, why was I so scared? Why was I so worried? You know? So, so yeah, like, like poking that isolation bubble and just realize, you know, you're not alone. Like, you know, there, there's someone you can reach on the phone or physically that's close to you that can come just be with you, that's probably the right thing to do. Yeah, I agree. I think so often we try to be these pillars of strength and, oh, I got it. I can handle it. And we don't need to live like that. We don't have to isolate. It really... There's so much more power in in reaching out to people and allowing people to show up for you. Give people that opportunity. And I think you'll be surprised more often than not the way people want to help and take care of you and and just be a, a shoulder to cry on sometimes. We haven't talked a lot about Hashimoto's on this show. And I would love to get your take on what your initial symptoms were and how that created a lot of the flare-ups and issues for you and how you navigated that part of your journey. Yeah. So I started feeling numbness in my fingertips. That was my very first symptom. And it happened when I was living in Seattle. It happened over the winter. I thought that I just you know, was cold or that my circulation wasn't great. And I, and I just kind of ignored it. But over time, the numbness started spreading up my hands and up my elbows and started turning into pain. And then I also noticed that I was losing like handfuls of hair, like on my pillow, I'd wake up in the morning and there would just be like a nest of hair there. Um, I started um, having a lot of trouble sleeping. I started feeling really fatigued and I needed a lot of coffee, which was really bad because I worked at a coffee shop. So, oh no. <laughs> yeah. So I, I was definitely drinking like 16 shots of espresso a day. Mm-hmm. Um, I was so addicted that at one point I would work an early morning shift from like four in the morning to like 10 in the morning. And then I would go home, take a nap, wake up in withdrawal, walk back to the coffee shop and get more because <laughs> I was so addicted. So really just starting to rely on the crutches of like caffeine, sugar, processed diet. And I started going to the doctor and it took me six doctors and to really get my diagnosis. And by the sixth doctor, I had figured out by using Google that I had hypothyroid symptoms. But because I was young, I was 26. And because I was a normal weight and because I looked healthy, 
even though I felt terrible. And I know so many people have this experience where you're just like half your eyebrows are gone, half your hair is gone. I had had hair that was down to my belly button and I lost about 50% of it over the course of three months. And so I was just distraught about that. And, And my doctors were like pulling me aside from my husband being like, well, if you are having eating disorder tendencies, like you can talk to us. And I was like, you guys, <laughs> like, this is this is not the problem. The next doctors thought that I had depression, wanted to give me antidepressants, and you know, it was a whole thing. So um, eventually I found a doctor, it was actually a naturopath who tested my antibodies because I begged at this point. I was like, I know I have Hashimoto's, I just need the antibodies. And he had the foresight actually to even test celiac um, antibodies also. And they both both came up positive. I got my diagnosis on the same day. But then he said, your thyroid labs are normal and you don't need to do anything but go on a gluten-free diet. So that's kind of where the whole food piece started for me. Wow. So I was like, wait a minute, what? <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. How quickly did you learn that gluten, just taking gluten out wasn't going to be enough for you? Uh, two weeks. Yeah. You know, it, it, and it was weird because I took gluten out and I, I actually got worse. So I started having neurological problems. I started slurring my speech and I was like bumping all over. I was dizzy all the time. And I had this really bad pleurisy, which is like a, like a chest pain. And I went back to the doctor and they were like, Oh, well, you might be developing MS or lupus, but you got to have that for like six months, the symptoms for six months before we can really make a diagnosis. And, you know, and then I was just like negative spiral, you know, like, what am I going to do about this? Nobody's helping me, you know? Yeah. What do you find is the most important thing people can do when it comes to advocating for themselves within the medical world? So there's a big piece of education that I wish I knew. You know, it took me six doctors to figure out, but I know there's a lot of backlash against Googling. And, you know, if you have anxiety, I would say, you know, get someone close to you to maybe help you investigate some of your symptoms and make a list of tests, tests to ask for. But that was something that could have really accelerated my path to diagnosis was just knowing more about how you know thyroid disease is um, diagnosed and knowing that I needed the antibody test and knowing that the symptoms that I were, was experiencing were classic thyroid symptoms and that you don't have to be have like weight loss resistance in order to have a hypothyroid. You know, it's just, I can't even tell you how many women I've talked to in their 20s who are incredibly hypothyroid and not overweight. It's, it's not... I don't know. The the way the medical community makes it sound is that um, you know, they're looking for this picture that literally is an image in their mind of a woman walking in their door that is thyroid disease. And when you don't look like that, you know, they they don't help you. So educating yourself about all of those tests, about all the symptoms, and being able to have an informed conversation with a doctor, I mean, that is gonna go so far. Well, um, and then when they tell you, well, your numbers don't show this, so you don't have this, I think you have to speak up for yourself. Yeah. That doesn't feel right. Yeah. Like, like you can say, well, I have thyroid disease in my family and I still have symptoms. So would you be open to testing antibodies to rule out early stage autoimmune thyroid? Mm-hmm. You know? Yep. 
And I think if you know what you're talking about, a lot of doctors go, oh, okay, I guess I could run antibodies, you know? Right. Um, but if you're like, I don't know, but I feel sick, do something. They're going to be kind of like, here's some antidepressants, you know? Mm-hmm. So yeah, informing informing yourself is really important and and knowing how to choose a doctor, you know, knowing... You know, I'm a big fan of functional medicine, um, but I'm not a big fan of how it's inaccessible to a lot of people. So most people, including myself, have to go through the conventional system to get our healthcare because that's how our system is set up. So knowing how to find a conventional doctor that is collaborative, you can do it. You know, does your doctor listen to you? Are they open to um, different options for medication. So if you're a thyroid patient, if you walk into your... You can even call the front desk and say, hey, does, does this doctor prescribe anything but Synthroid? You can even call a compounding pharmacy and say, who are the doctors in the area that prescribe compounded medication? Those are probably going to be the ones that are open-minded about different medications because that's what they're doing with their other patients. Mm. You know, So yeah. using some tricks like that um, to work within the system... You know, I've I've found some great conventional doctors just by asking questions, looking at reviews, going into the communities, um, different chronic illness communities, and asking for referrals. So yeah, yeah, never settle when it comes to your health. Always advocate for yourself and and ask those important questions. Mickey, thank you so much for coming on with me. And I mentioned this earlier to you, but I am just. So beyond grateful for all of this work you're doing. You are a huge reason that I am here today and feeling good and clear. And I love all of your recipes. And I'm so excited to dive into your new cookbook. And congratulations on all of this. You truly deserve it. Thank you so much, Kelly. It's been a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Mickey. She is just so inspiring and her health journey is something that we can all look at and see how there can be a light at the end of the tunnel. And she proves that every day that by using food as medicine and taking time for ourselves and focusing on our own health, we can really change our lives and set ourselves up for success. So don't forget to grab the Nutrient Dense Kitchen and head to mickeytrescott.com for her blog and her many free recipes that she shares with the world. Many of those I have made in the last few years and they've really helped me enjoy cooking and enjoy food in a brand new way. In just a few days, we'll have another amazing conversation for you here on the Platform Podcast. But in the meantime, thank you so much for listening and we'll see you soon.